That, ladies and gentlemen, is the sound of pure, unbridled, unfiltered ecstasy as Roma have knocked off Goliath. Barcelona goes home. Lionel Messi, the one that many consider to be the greatest player in the world, now has to turn his attention to the World Cup as Roma completes what is maybe one of the most improbable comebacks in recent international football history, perhaps the win of the year, the comeback of the year. And now we have to start shifting our attention forward to the semifinals. We've got full recaps of all the Champions League games, as well as some recaps from Serie A, La Liga, EPL. Of course, not League Un right now. I don't I don't really know how many people are tuning in to listen to our coverage of PSG running away with that league. But uh, suffice it to say, there is plenty to cover, as well as CONCACAF Champions League, which did uh, present some fights on the pitch and some fights off the pitch. We'll get to that later on in the show. But Phil, I think we really have to start as much as I would love to start with Real Madrid and as much as you don't want to start with Manchester City, Liverpool, I think we'll find some common ground here. We're, of course, not going to start with Bayern Sevilla. That was a, a boring second leg. Let's start off with the game that featured this amazing comeback that only about 167,000 people saw via Fox Sports' Facebook Live account. And of course, that was Roma and Barcelona. Have you gotten over the shock yet? Not really. Roma 3, Barcelona nil. 4-4 in aggregate, Roma go through on an away goal. I spent a lot of time in our last show uh, talking about what a seer I am, how brilliant I am. I can see the future. I have power over time and space. Well, listening back to last week's show, I buried Roma effectively 10 feet into the ground, not even six, and said that there was no chance that they could score three goals at home to bring this tie back into this position, which is a strange take that I had insofar as I had spent some time on the show talking about how Roma were in that first leg away to Barca. They had at least one penalty shot ignored. Ed and Dzeko scored against Barcelona in the first leg, and I probably should have given Roma a little bit more than the 0% chance that I gave them, uh, especially since, for whatever reason, Barcelona decided that they were never going to get off the bus in this match. They were second best all night. They were finished off by a header from a center back off a corner, which is one of the simplest goals to defend. Barcelona couldn't even manage to do that. And yes, this is a cataclysmic event. It's a night Roma supporters will always remember. It's a night Barcelona supporters are trying desperately to forget. And it's, frankly, another black mark on the legacy of Lionel Messi, which I know we'll get into in a little bit. It's something where, you know, I I had a a friend say to me earlier in the week, you know, maybe Barca wasn't that concerned. Like, there's a thought out there, and, and he was the one that brought this up to me, and I hadn't really considered it, that there are certain players that at this point potentially could have been looking ahead. You know, it, it's it's human nature to kind of think that you're going to go on, especially when you're facing, you know, what looks like an insurmountable lead. Um, 
there's also a part of you that that might theoretically kind of start to look forward to the World Cup. And if you're messy, you've never really delivered on that international stage. And, you know, maybe there's a little bit of pressure that comes from that. And you're thinking, you know, you don't have to put that much into this match. Or maybe, you know, if worse comes to worse, if you go out, it gives you more time to rest up for that World Cup and to try to, you know, get rid of that other dark mark that's on your career, which is, you know, you're called the best player in the world. You have at one point delivered a Champions League uh, trophy to Barcelona and their fans. However, you you really haven't done much on that international stage. I, I look. We will get to this. We'll of course get to the Ronaldo Messi matchup. Well, it, it this leg I think did a, a great job of kind of encapsulating the juxtaposition of these two players. Um, you know, in, in terms of what they can do with their club and especially the way that they play in Champions League. You know, on one hand, you had a guy in Ronaldo who continues to score in the Champions League and score when his team needs him most. And in Lionel Messi's case, he, he came up small. And, you know, we'll get to that in a little bit. But this this Barca-Roma matchup, as we're watching it on Facebook Live, you know, I, I started off watching City-Liverpool on the TV, and I couldn't figure out why in the world Roma, you know, they didn't switch over to the Roma game, especially when it got it to 2-0, because at that point, you really had to start to think that that momentum have totally shifted to Roma. And, you know, it doesn't make any sense to me unless it was really a TV rights issue. I, I still don't understand how Fox doesn't switch that game over. I like it. It is. It's perplexing to say the least. But watching the way that that Roma kind of picked apart and I think it was about the 80th minute to just watch as their manager sent them forward and, you know, essentially kind of took the shackles off and just forced everyone up. I mean, it was something that I, I thought the commentary crew who was covering that game didn't know they they really did not do a great job, Phil. Uh, it, it was it was just littered with mistakes. It was littered with poor commentary. It was it was just it just was poor, and it certainly was not the the level of you know the the John Strong led commentary crew that we've been you know treated to. And I think John Strong's done a, a really great job of of you know capturing the best moments and getting out of the way. We'll get to that with Madrid in a little bit, but um, the, it was kind of painful to listen to. And it certainly did not do a good job as a commentary team. They did not do a very good job of, you know, hitting that that major moment when the third goal was scored. And it was very clear that that meant that Roma, by virtue of that away goal, was going to move through. They didn't really even seem to mention it. It was almost as if the announcing crew thought that it was just tied on aggregate and that, you know, neither team had added an away goal or something like that. it wasn't the, wow, that's going to put them through or that could potentially put them through. There was little to no mention of it. It was just weird. It was kind of surreal. And I don't know if it's because they didn't expect it to happen. If they, if they just weren't prepared for it. But it seemed like a real large failure on their part. Um, I, I don't know. It's certainly not as big of a failure as, you know, Barca, Barca themselves not being able to, to uh, wrap this one up. But, man, credit to, to Roma. I mean, you're, you're at home. You're facing a, a tough deficit. And nobody in the world gave you credit. I mean, I don't even know how many of the Roma supporters honestly went into that stadium believing that their team was going to come out victorious. Uh, once once they scored the first goal, and, you know, we've talked about, and especially you, you've been beating the Ed and Dzeko drum. Dzeko just kind of finds a way to get himself involved. And, and uh, you know, in the way that we had said earlier, it was maybe an episode or two ago, that Juve and Real Madrid in a lot of cases kind of seem to let the other team hang around, and then they snatch a victory from the jaws of defeat in the last moment. It really kind of felt similar to that with this Roma matchup. I mean, it, it just felt like, uh, you know, they went in as such big underdogs, and then they, they just, the momentum shifted in this game, and Barca was never able to recover. It I, I felt like the only time Barcelona really came out 
playing hard was probably around uh, the time the second goal was scored, but certainly after the third goal was scored, it finally looked like they were trying to piece this thing together. And at that point, Roma's manager had them drop back. You saw throughout the game, Barcelona just kind of relying on these long passes that just isn't their style. It's it's low percentage chances to try to eat up as much real estate as possible. It was an ineffective strategy, and it was as if they were unable to adjust to the game in front of them. And that's, I, you know, I, I throw that on their manager. It's it's really hard at halftime to uh, to not have your team prepared for the potential of a Roma comeback and how you're going to have to try to neutralize them as well as neutralize the crowd. They, they just didn't do a good job and momentum built and, you know, hats off to Roma. It, 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 like I said in the beginning, it's perhaps the biggest upset we've seen in recent memory. And it's, it's certainly a, a massive upset within this tournament. It changes the entire landscape. And I, you know, I want to get to the, the narrative that surrounds Serie A in a little bit, but it, they certainly did their country and their league, you know, a, a real solid here by moving on. The danger of having Lionel Messi on your club and in your 11 is that the other 10 players on the pitch know that you have Lionel Messi in your 11. And when things go pear-shaped, as they did for Barcelona in this match, especially after Dzeko scores very early in the match to put Barcelona on notice that it's not going to be a walkover after all, there is the tendency of Barcelona players to wait for Messi to do something special. And he often does it. I'm not going to sit here and point the finger at him and say he's the reason they lost this match by three goals and this tie on an away goal. That's unfair. It's fair to say that he was not at his best in this tie. I don't know whether Messi's concerns about his international duties with Argentina and the failures in the past and the fact that this may be the last time he is the focal point of their World Cup run are on his mind. But Shame on him if that's the reason he played poorly in this Champions League tie. Barcelona supporters don't want to hear that. Champions League trophies are few and far between, even for clubs like Barcelona. They've won plenty, but you can never win enough. So, ultimately, I remember after Roma scored the final goal and put this tie in position where they'd go through on the away goal, it was that look on the faces of all the Barcelona players, including Messi, but especially his teammates. The blood seemed to draw out of their faces. They were pale. They were obviously nervous. They were a little bit frightened, and they couldn't believe what had happened to them. Yes, Roma deserves all the credit in the world, and they were actually better in this tie over two legs, uh, even though I didn't think they had a chance to do what they did in the second leg at home. The way they played over two legs, this was a thoroughly deserved result for Roma. And again, a famous night in Italy, and... Good on them. That's terrific. But it's going to cause some inquests at Barcelona, uh, starting with the manager, but also with a lot of the players, especially Luis Suarez, who really did nothing in this match and wasn't great over the tie. Questions are going to be asked, and some of the answers are going to be uncomfortable. It's just a really bad time if you're if you're a person living in Catalonia. I mean, first you had a referendum vote for independence that got shut down because the Spanish capital of Madrid came in uh, essentially expelled Carlos Puigdemont and, uh, you know, kind of took back over the region. And now you've got the Italian capital smacking you down and kicking you to the curb in the Champions League. It is not a good, not a good year for Catalonia at this point. Sad. Sad is all I'll say. One uh, last bit I'll add about Messi because it's a stat I heard in the fallout from this uh, failure by Barcelona in the Champions League. And we're going to hear a lot 
of fallout from this over the next weeks and months. But from what I gathered in my research for tonight and uh, also just hearing the commentating, Messi has failed to score in the last six elimination matches in the Champions League for Barcelona, which basically underscores the point I made already. If he doesn't score, he's not surrounded by guys who can carry him through a bad night or a bad two nights like he had in this tie against Roma. If he doesn't do it, they're in deep trouble. And he's turning 31 in June. I don't know how much longer Barcelona can stand around and expect Messi to give them everything they want all the time. You're totally right. And, you know, this kind of comes back to, um, you know, I think an issue that Messi's kind of facing overall in his legacy. So this year is very likely going to come down as one of the worst in his career. Now, granted, they ran away with La Liga, and that's fantastic. You know, if you're if you're huge in winning your domestic league, more power to you. But what's going to end up happening when we look back on 2018 is Messi will have come up short. I'm looking at a you know a moment from the 86th minute where Messi essentially bats the ball to himself twice, get, splits defenders, and gets a you know a, a half effort on the ball where he realistically had an opportunity to make solid contact. Now it is behind him a little bit. But it's a play that we've seen Lionel Messi make hundreds of times in his career. He's on the doorstep, not that far away from the keeper, and he hits it right into the ground. It's a little dribbler that bounces up to the keeper. And that's a moment where that that is exactly the kind of play that he needs to make. It's the kind of play that Madrid fans expect Ronaldo to make. It's the kind of you know play that... Um, that PSG fans would have expected from Cavani or in the past from Ibrahimovic. It's the kind of thing that you would expect Sergio Aguero to, to nail. And the fact that he came up small in that moment, it, like I, I don't think you can downplay how big of a moment it was. Now, granted, there are going to be people who are going to say that throughout the game, Luis Suarez was to blame, that his his play was abysmal, um, and that ultimately you, know, you can't just put one moment on Messi. I think he was close on at least one free kick from just outside the box. But, you know, I'm looking at that moment, and, you know, at that point, Roma had scored all three of their goals. You knew that there was going to be some pretty significant stoppage time added on, and that is one moment where if he makes contact to practically any other spot on the uh, towards goal, it, it's going to likely go in. Keeper's not going to be able to react on it if he gets solid contact, which he didn't. And it's just, you know, I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, you know, here we are at another quarterfinal stage, and Barcelona's knocked out. And now Messi kind of limps his way back to lick his wounds and to look forward to this World Cup. But like I've been saying, I don't think they're a real threat for the World Cup. And so, you know, when people look back on 2018, they're going to say, yeah, you know, they won La Liga, but they got knocked out once again in the quarterfinals of the Champions League. And Messi's team, you know, got knocked out in one of the first two rounds of uh, of knockouts in the World Cup. And so this this kind of comes back around to this narrative that kind of, follows his career that you know for a while people have kind of downplayed but you know remember after the last world cup Messi said that he was done with international you know representing argentina and it wasn't until you know some of his teammates came out and complained and and whined and and practically begged him to come back uh you know akin to it felt a lot like uh you know lebron james when his his teammates kind of feel like he's going to be walking away from the team and they all implore him with everything they have for him to stay. I mean, it's like any free agent in any sport. You want your best player to stay. You know, so he comes back to, to Argentina. But, you know, this is, I think, going to be another whimper. And I'm expecting another retirement. So will 2018 be the year of, of a, another early exit from Champions League, an early exit from the World Cup, and then another international retirement? I mean, like, 
that that that's a stain on his career that he cannot get back. Now, this all goes away if he leads Argentina deep into the World Cup. At that point, I think he's fine because he's already led them to a Champions League uh, win a few years ago. If he's able to deliver on the international stage, then maybe he's okay. But if they go out in that first knockout stage or the second knockout round, this does not look good for him. And I don't care how many people want to you know, stand up on the soapbox and say that he's the best all-around player in the world, which I will concede he is. But he is not the scorer they needed in this matchup. Luis Suarez was not the scorer they needed in this matchup. You know who they really could have used, Phil? I think they could have used Neymar. And, you know, they've been able to get by all throughout this season without Neymar. But in a match where they needed somebody to create his own shot, to execute on free kicks, and to ultimately, you know, draw gravity, as I like to say, draw defenses away from goal to free up that space for Lionel Messi, they needed Neymar and they didn't have anybody to replace him. And going back to your point about their international, Messi's international responsibilities and Argentina's hopes generally, back in November, the Guardian did a preview and talked about how this is going to be the last waltz, probably, as we've mentioned earlier, for Messi, certainly as captain and focal point of the side. But you have players like Sergio Romero, Angel Di Maria, Sergio Aguero, Igaín. Benega, a lot of these guys don't have a lot of runs left. It's probably the end for most of them. So just think about the pressure that Messi has on him turning 31, as we've talked about, and also being the leader of this group of a bunch of elite players who have similar problems with Father Time passing them by. So, yeah, it's going to be the last chance for Messi to undo a lot of the legacy problems he has at the international level in the World Cup. And man, that's a heavy weight to carry. And it's also something where like, look, Paolo Dybala, right? People have been kind of looking for for him to take a bigger step on the international stage. They're looking at, as, at him as the heir apparent to Messi with the Argentine national team. And maybe that's fair. And maybe he'll be able to to lead them to a future, you know, a prosperous future. But it's not his time yet, and Messi needs to come up large. And they, they have the attack. I don't think there's anybody who sits back and says that they that they will want for attacking, right? But their their defense is still suspect. And you know, I'm you know, for as much as people might like Romero, he he doesn't do it for me. Like he's not a world class goalkeeper as far you know from where I'm sitting. Unless they're going to get into some track meets and they're going to, you know, look to to get involved in shootouts in the World Cup, I just don't see how they're going to compete. Now, granted, the Cup is still, you know, a a couple of months away and there are potentially, you know, injuries that could come up and maybe their path gets a little bit easier. These are things that we don't know. We also don't know what kind of form these other teams are going to be in. But, you know, as it stands right now, I'm not a big believer in Argentina. And based on his history in the World Cup and based on his... His uh, history, you know, on the world stage, I I don't see any reason to believe that this one's going to be different and that Messi's, you know, all of a sudden going to just become this prolific scorer that they're going to probably need him to be uh, for them to advance far in this World Cup. But that's enough of crapping on on Messi and Barcelona. Well, very quickly before we leave this, just to tie a quick bow on this, and we mentioned this in a prior show, Argentina is in Group D. They're drawn with Iceland, Croatia, and Nigeria. Yep. Now... I think they're going to be heavily favored to get out of that group. So the good news for Argentina is they, at some level, have three matches. They're not warm-ups by any means. 
But they have three matches that they will be favored to win. They'll have three matches to sort out some of those defensive frailties that you've talked about. Uh, if Messi gets on a bit of a scoring tear or a creating tear, as he can do in those group stage matches, this could be a different conversation we're having in a couple of months, and I'm looking forward to it. It'll be really nice as we get closer to the Cup. Like, uh, it, I, I love the Champions League, so I, I'm actually more excited about this uh, final, this uh, semifinal stage coming up for the Champions League than I am for the World Cup. I know that seems kind of preposterous, and I'll, I'll be very hyped up once the World Cup rolls around, but I can't even begin to think about it, really, uh, until these games have kind of played themselves out. Let's move on to Messi's nemesis, Cristiano Ronaldo. This Real Madrid squad, it looked like a Serie A team was going to once again upset a La Liga team, which would have changed, uh, you know, before we get into this match. You know, I think a lot of people often say that Serie A is not a competitive league and that ultimately on the world stage, they don't typically perform too well, with the exception of Juventus. And all I kept thinking during this match, uh, you know, I was in the car driving and as I'm driving, uh, I hate to admit it, but I, you know, I was looking on my phone to try to see if I could find a live stream to listen to. And I found this BBC Five uh, stream where it was just a guy sitting in a studio kind of talking about what was happening in the match. There were no match sounds. It was just this guy sitting somewhere in England, you know, and we are sitting here on the third minute waiting for Cristiano Ronaldo to take his penalty and John Luigi Buffon appears to have been set off for dissent. And, and like, there's no emotion. It's just very cut and dry. And, you know, this is about the time that I think you had sent me the 13th text keeping me, you know, posted in real time. And all I kept thinking was, if Juventus is able to pull off this massive upset. And now, look, they've won their sixth, probably soon to be their seventh Scudetto in a row, which is still, you know, six was a record. Seven will just extend it. Um, to see a Serie A squ- squad like Roma go out and beat Barcelona and then the next day, potentially, Juve to come back against Real Madrid, if they had been able to, cl- to pull that one off, I feel like the entire narrative around Serie A would have changed. I mean, you would have had to look at them differently. I think it's a similar way that in recent years, uh, you know, for as much as people like to say that the EPL is the best league in the world, it's hard to argue that the top teams don't come out of La, out of La Liga. You know, like I, I would still say in pretty much any given year, Barcelona and Real Madrid, I would match them up against any champion of, of any European league. And that includes the EPL. I think heads up in most years, either Barca or Real would, would defeat the English champion. And I, I don't think it's close. So from that standpoint, you know, that's been a, a narrative change. Uh, I would say more in recent years. And, you know, as much as I like to talk about Sevilla being the best sixth place team in the world, um, you know, it's still it's still something to be said for how, how well La Liga has done. If Serie A, you know, had managed to to advance, I mean, just imagine two Serie A teams knocking out two La Liga teams. At some point, do we then start to talk about, uh, you know, bigger transfer targets starting to make the move to Italy? Does it kind of add new life to Serie A? Do we finally start to see teams other than just, uh, Napoli or or um, uh, Juventus or even to some extent Roma, you know, being the competitive teams at the top. Do we start to see a resurgence of AC Milan? Do we start to see Inter wanting to keep up and go out and acquire players? Do players now want to start to consider Serie A to be a much more, you know, legitimate and competitive league than, you know, where I think they're kind of, I think to some extent Serie A is kind of in the same group that Liga 1 is at this point. You view it as a one-horse race. Uh, maybe a little bit more with Serie A. There's, there's maybe two or three teams, but they're cer- they're certainly not held to the same standard that La Liga 
or the EPL are, and maybe even to a lesser extent, the Bundesliga. Maybe Bundesliga and Serie A are, are a better comparison, but I think you get my point. Well, we've talked before about how much you love Dybala, and of course he wasn't available for this match, which makes and made the prospect of Juventus going to Real Madrid and overturning a three-goal deficit all the more silly to think about and unlikely. But you also had Sergio Ramos unavailable due to accumulated yellow card suspension, and Mario Mandzukic took full advantage of Ramos's absence. The two goals Mandzukic scored in the first half were essentially the same goal, except one time he redirected a header across the face of goal to the far post, and the other time he smashed it near post, and the keeper may have been slightly at fault, but it found its way in. And now you're at halftime of a Champions League match, and Real Madrid are looking at a 2-0 deficit at home, knowing that the third goal puts it into potential extra time and maybe penalty kicks down the line. And sure enough, Matuidi scores in the 60th minute. My comment on this, actually, in retrospect, would be, I think Matuidi's goal actually came too soon for Juventus because they still had another half an hour plus to kill. And even though Real Madrid had played poorly in the match to that point, although they had a couple of chances, they had a ball go off the bar at the end of the first half, which would have definitely changed the complexion of everything. Um, But to try to deal with, first of all, you spend so much energy reversing a 3-0 deficit that there's almost a necessary uh, falling of action by Juventus after Matuidi scores. And it sort of didn't feel like Juventus was going to score in that last half hour plus, but they had enough of possession and enough control of what they do that it looked like extra time was really likely. And in extra time, obviously, anything can happen, and it just takes one play. But it almost seemed as though they had spent so much energy getting the score back to level for the two legs of the tie that they would have been perfectly happy to go to added time after the 90th minute and try to make magic on one play and make one more goal carry them through. The problem is, as we're going to talk about, Juventus did not survive the end of the second half and the added time. And that really is the story of the match. I think overall, that Matuidi signing, I thought, was was rather unheralded. And it ended up being one that, that I think, you know, it obviously paid dividends on the goal that he scored. Um, but I thought it gave them kind of a, another element uh, to their to their their possession and to their game. Uh, it, it, I, I think you're right. Uh, it, sometimes you know, like in the playoffs uh, of other sports, you know, we often talk about comebacks in, let's say, the NFL. Um, you don't want to have your your offense leave the field with like six minutes left, right? You don't want to hand it back to the other team with a lead uh, with like six minutes left in the game because you know inevitably it it's probably going to put you in a position where uh they're going to be able to run out the clock and try to you know get that final possession that final score and you'll be left with with nothing and it kind of felt similarly i i think you're totally right 30 minutes ish left in the game you know at that point do you then decide to um to sit back and uh you know try to force this thing into extra time i think you know to some extent i thought the reason that buffon got so angry was not only that the penalty occurred in was it the second or third minute of stoppage time 
and, you know, obviously they protested it and they thought that it, it was a weak call at best, to put it lightly. Um, I, I think that there's something to be said for Buffon mentally kind of preparing himself for extra time. You know, I, I don't think that in the moment he's, you know, out on the pitch thinking about how he's going to try to, you know, elevate his game in that in that 30 minute, um, like the 15 minute halves to, you know, 30 minutes of, of extra time. Um, nor do I think that he's already kind of thinking ahead to a shootout potentially, but you kind of do start to get yourself in a, in a mentality. I think at some point where you're getting word from the sideline, you know, kind of bunker in, bunker in and and play for the extra time, uh, especially when you're on the road. And in his mind, I think he expected to go to extra time and, and that his team would be able to step it up and you know extend this match and instead you know he essentially in his mind gets robbed of not only what what should have been a fairy tale ending of sorts or should have at least you know at worst have been you know going down with a fight instead it kind of gets it gets pulled away the the rug gets pulled out from under him not only are you not going to extra time but now you've conceded a penalty to probably the most lethal penalty taker in the world i mean they call him penaldo for a reason um it, it's just for in some ways, I just felt bad for Buffon. I'm no. going to set the scene a little bit more here, okay. Russell, if I may, because we've gotten maybe two steps further than we might have. Um, my recollection is not perfect, but in this case, I'm very confident of it. The penalty happened in the third minute of added time at the end of the second half, right around like 15 to 20 seconds into that third minute of stoppage time. So there's only like 40 more seconds that Juventus has to survive. But then Benadia goes through the back of Lucas Vazquez. It's a penalty. Juventus fans don't want to hear it. And sometimes that sort of play gets overlooked and the referee just lets things play on. But Juventus fans probably forget that Juve's luck had been running with Michael Oliver all night. Michael Oliver being the match official who was assigned from the Premier League, so he's an English official. And Oliver had shown six separate yellow cards to Juve players through the course of the 90-odd minutes before this penalty was given. Juve had gummed this match up in a significant way physically. And Oliver had probably seen enough by the time Minadia made the play that he made. It's a penalty. He gave it. And then Buffon loses his mind along with five or six of his teammates. I can kind of excuse the behavior of his teammates. I sort of can't excuse Buffon's behavior. He's a captain. He's an elder statesman. He's been playing this game a long time. And for him to make any physical contact with an official, no matter what he thinks of the official decision, is completely uncalled for, inappropriate, and conduct unbecoming. And for him to get sent off in this situation and therefore be deprived of the opportunity to stop Ronaldo's penalty, or at least to concede that penalty but be carried off on his shield, for lack of a better phrase, that's on Gigi Buffon. That's his problem. That's his fault. He did that to himself. And so while the UVA supporters have to be half dead after this result because it looked for a long time in that match like they were going to pull off the miracle... Ultimately, you have to play until the whistle blows, and Juve let down their guard at an extremely inopportune time to create the penalty opportunity and to give Oliver the opportunity to make that call, which he rightly did, in my opinion. So it's crocodile tears for me. 
I just don't think you're being empathetic to the situation that the guy's in. We talked about this going into this matchup. It it really was potentially going to be his last Champions League game. And by virtue of the Asuri having a terrible run-up in World Cup qualifying, he doesn't even get to redeem himself uh, this this summer in the World Cup. So now, like, in a way that, you know, I was talking a little bit about, ago about, you know, how this this kind of year and the, the way that Barcelona went out and the way that I think they're going to go out kind of early in the World Cup can taint Messi in a way. Uh, you know, he at least has the opportunity to redeem himself on that stage, and, and Buffon is not awarded that same possibility. So now, like, you take this career where this guy's been an absolute legend for Italian football, and he's been a legend for Juventus, and now you're you're essentially, he's going out with a whimper. He's going out in, in probably the, the worst way that he could have pictured this, with the exception of, you know, winning the seven Scudetto in a row, which is, again, it's great. It's great to win your domestic league, but he had never won the Champions League. It was the one title that eluded him. And, you know, for him to go out the way that he did, there's part of me that, I don't know if it's just the cynic in me, but part of me thinks that he was, uh, you know, he was so irate and it's, it's easily going to become his Zidane moment. But is there part of him that as a human thinks, I don't want the last uh, video of my career to be Ronaldo besting me one more time? Uh, wait like, a I, minute. I, wait I, a know, minute. I know that you don't think that in the moment. I know that there are no narratives going through your head. But, like, if you pull yourself away from this a second, I know this didn't go through his head. But, like, I think if I'm him, legacy-wise... I'm not that upset with the last thing being, you know, what some people will call an unfair red card given to a legendary player. If that's the last uh, clip of my career, is it a disappointment? Yeah. But, man, I, I think I'd rather that than than be the guy in goal letting Ronaldo take his shirt off and uh, go celebrate in the Bernabeu. Now, maybe well, first of all, first of all, as a competitor, why doesn't Buffon want the opportunity to stop that penalty? Because that's got to be what's going through in his head, right? It's a penalty, and if I stop it, we're still alive, and I'm a hero. I think in his heart of hearts, he knew he wasn't going to stop it. Well, that's a shame honest. then. That's a shame then. Maybe they should find another keeper. I think they, well, they're, they're going to. He's, he's going to retire. And by the way, he played very, very well in this match. I was maybe a touch disrespectful of Buffon in our last show and comparing him to the Derek Jeter farewell tour. Buffon was really good in this match, and he was prepared to stick it right in my eye, and more or less did until he lost his mind after the penalty was given. I do not think there's a moment in Buffon's mind where he is considering the risk-reward of staying on the pitch and facing a Ronaldo penalty as against bumping Oliver and being sent to the stand. This is the worst way he can go off, in my opinion. Again, a captain, a team legend. And a person in that moment who still has the opportunity to keep his team playing on in a Champions League match. This was the wrong time for him to get sent off. It was the wrong conduct. I have no defense for it. And we talked before we went on the air. His comments and his complaints and his whinging to the press after this match did not cover Buffon in glory either. Yeah, so uh, here, I'll, I'll do an abbreviated version of what his quote was. Um, but in response to the call by Oliver in throwing him out, um, he said, Ti porta a essere una persona senza cure con al suo posto un cestino di spazzatura. Uh, saying that, you know, this is a man who uh, has a trash can in place of where his heart should be. I mean, like, 
I love Italian. I love the Italian language. It's beautiful. It's musical. It's uh, borderline magisterial. And that certainly uh, is a, a bit of a mouthful. But the way that he went after Oliver after, after the match, if there's one spot that I will agree with you on, it's that these quotes are unbecoming of a captain. And I think outside of, of him actually having gotten himself a straight red for making contact and for dissent and all that, uh, I think this is something that you say long after the ashes or long after the dust has settled. You know, maybe this is a thing that in a few years you're going back, you're writing a memoir, you're writing uh, your own, you're writing an autobiography, or you're letting somebody kind of follow your life and they're writing a biography about you. And that's kind of like the one moment that, I don't know, that's like a, it sounds like a lead quote, doesn't it? It sounds like a quote that should be used to sell a book. It doesn't sound like the kind of thing that a captain should be saying after the match. I mean, well, like, here's another you thing know, that can... I had to say. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I'm going to forget this and I don't want to forget it. Here was the thought I had when Buffon lost his mind and was shown red and had to leave and created essentially a five or six minute delay in the match because Juve now needs to decide who they're taking off. They have to bring Chesney on. Chesney is bringing, being brought on cold to face a Ronaldo penalty that will put Real Madrid through for all intents and purposes. And I felt bad for Chesney in the moment. But here's the other thing I thought. What if Ronaldo mishits this thing and he hit it really hard as a perfect penalty, as a laser, right? When he hit it, I thought, man, that might go wide, wide and high. He might have missed this. Well, how about this? If somehow Ronaldo misses the target or if somehow Chesney saves it, now Juve have to play down a man for 30 minutes and because taken- Buffon couldn't keep his temper. That's embarrassing. That's inappropriate. So this goes further against the narrative that possibly in his mind, Buffon thought it might be better to be sent off than to lose by having a penalty rocket by him because there's still a chance that something strange happens and Juve has the chance to play extra time. They're going to play with 10 men because you lose your head? Completely And they took Iguain off the pitch. They did. Make, they had to. Down. So not only, you know, okay, so let's let's go with that a little bit more. So so not only are you further compounding the issue because you've brought in your cold backup keeper, which is fine. Like, if he makes the save, if it goes wide, you know, he's going to have some time in between um, before the, the extra time would start up, right? And, of course, there's like a, a half time within that, so it's fine. Like, he would have some time to stretch out. But you've now also taken off probably your best goal scorer. And now, obviously, Manzuka Chad had some goals in this match and he had been able to kind of take a, uh, advantage of a Sergio Ramos less uh, Madrid defense. But you know, Iguain had to come out like that, that that's an absolute killer. Like if you had even gotten it, you know, in, in this case, let's say they move on to extra time. This, this attack is nowhere near as, as potent with Iguain off. I'm actually surprised that the manager made the move um, because of all the people that I would take up, I would not think that Iguain would be a guy that I wouldn't want to go into extra time with. It almost kind of spoke more to the desperation of, uh, or maybe desperation is not the right word for it. I mean, you're obviously in a desperate strait, so you have to put in your backup keeper. But like, to me, it's it's almost poor planning. He's pulling Egan off because he realizes that now he's down to ten, and if Ronaldo misses somehow, he's going to have to survive thirty minutes. So you take your attacker off to survive the thirty minutes, and you live with the fact that you won't have Egan in the shootout. Because this is what Buffon has done to you. And I'm sorry to keep banging on Buffon this way. but It's okay. I getting got, mess- sent I got off, messy. You got Buffon. Getting sent off this way is completely inappropriate. And just to continue, or pardon me, finish our trip down this rabbit hole, which I apologize for having led you on so long and so far. <laughs> what if 
in some hypothetical universe, Renato misses, and Juve gets through in a shootout. It's a straight red Buffon got. Chesney's going to start the next match in the semifinal. Come on. Come on, Gigi. Think. So let's let's kind of pick up sort of, you know, with a, a stupid moment. Um, I don't know what's dumber. The fact that he got himself thrown out, I, I know, it, it's, it's Buffon getting thrown out. But how about the fact that Sergio Ramos has now screwed Real Madrid in the first leg of their next match? That defense does not look the same without him. He's clearly one of their most important players. I mean, for as important as Ronaldo is on the attack, I, I'd almost argue that Marcelo and Sergio Ramos are nearly as important to their team's success as Ronaldo is. And Ramos was in the tunnel watching part of the match. So now he's, he's suspended from the first leg of the semifinal. I mean, like, well, he's likely to be. Have they announced that yet? I don't know. I, I think I was pretty sure this morning that that they announced that he's suspended. We'll pull that up in the, in a moment, but uh, or if you want to look that up, he's now, likely but, to he's likely to be because that's the precedent. They had a situation like this uh, about a decade ago, and that was the the penalty. Ramos missed this match, as I indicated earlier, earlier with accumulated red cards, and so he was to stay in the stand or in some box well above the fray. But as things came apart. Absolutely, for Real Madrid, he found his way down to pitch level. And this is my favorite part of it. He not only manages to get himself onto the pitch, not in the field of play, but you know, on the sidelines and noticeable, and the FIFA officials have to know who he is and where he is and that he's not supposed to be there. But he also apparently had some sort of altercation with Allegri, which is ridiculous because it's bad enough he's down there in the first place. But to have the opposing manager kind of pointing and screaming at you, drawing attention to the fact that you're in, you're where you're not supposed to be, you're exactly right. Whether he's been suspended already or whether it's announced tomorrow or the next day, they're going to be without him in the first leg at least of a Champions League semifinal. And you saw what Mandzukic did when he wasn't out there. He ran riot. And Mandzukic is not at the level of, for example, the attackers that Liverpool have, just pulling a club off the top of my head. This is daft, what Ramos did. And at some level, it's even more inexcusable than Buffon getting sent off because as much as I'm squashing Buffon, it is in the heat of the moment. And he did play in the match and play very, very well. And he realized the enormity of this situation the penalty that was called. Ramos has no business leaving his comfortable seat in the box or in the seats and just watching the match and hoping for the best. And for him to go down there and involve himself inappropriately and now face the possibility of not the probability of not playing the first leg of a Champions League semifinal completely unacceptable. Yeah, it's just stupid. And I'm I'm looking at the photo now of Allegri going over and confronting him. It, it's uh um I think it was part partially into stoppage time. Apparently, uh it sounds like Ramos was uh was kind of going ballistic about the penalty call, positively obviously. And Allegri ran over and confronted him saying no penal, no penal. And uh it's just it's stupid. It's boneheaded, and it's it's inexcusable. And like I said, like it puts them in such a bad spot. God help Real if they end up with Bayern Munich. That attack is going to rip the defense open. Like I don't I don't exactly know. Like, I guess you're going to have to try to to drop everyone back in that first leg, honestly, because otherwise, you know, you you can maybe come back against a Liverpool squad. You can easily come back against a Roma squad, but. The idea of if if Bayern guts you for four goals in the first leg, and God help you if it's at the at the Bernabeu to start, uh, you're going to put yourself behind you know the uh, the most massive um, 
eight ball you can. And that, that to me is, I think the more frightening thing. Like, yeah, it's great that, that Ronaldo was able to convert and, and push you through, but for as great as a moment as that was, this Ramos, this Ramos moment is, is easily the inverse. It's I'll the, suggest it's, here though, that Ramos has been a walking red card and his career has been pockmarked with horrible to poor decision-making at many levels. And so this sort of just continues a theme for him, although it's rare to see him do it when he's not actually playing. That is going to make for, for something interesting. Once we know what the draw is, uh, if it's against Liverpool or against Roma, I'm not too worried. Um, Salah maybe will for Liverpool would be able to get behind uh, whoever is going to play in, in place of Ramos. But um, it, it does make me nervous. As somebody who supports Madrid, it, it, it is a, a very scary proposition. If they get Bayern, I, I'm not feeling too good. And I'm, I'm expecting that the media and the fans... Uh, in Madrid right now have to be shaking their boots a little bit uh, knowing that Sergio you know really put them behind the uh, behind the eight ball so uh, that that I think is going to be interesting this this whole thing I mean let's be honest here the thing's called the Champions League and um, you know going into this semi-final there's only one champion one current champion in Europe left does that ever drive you nuts like just conceptually it's called the Champions League all we have left is uh, the the um, uh, is the Bundesliga leader right now and last year's obviously Bundesliga winner in Bayern Munich. You're left with runners up and uh, some third or fourth place finishers. Does that it doesn't drive me that nuts. That doesn't drive me that nuts. And I'll tell is you is it why. disappointing? Not really. I mean, look, Real Madrid are the defending champions in this tournament, if I remember correctly. They are. They're not some scrub side. We're not disappointed. They're still alive in this thing, even if they barely squeaked out this result. Uh, And moreover, I want to see clubs that continue to have something to play for when their league season doesn't fall exactly the way they want it to. Um, Look at Liverpool, and we're going to talk about them in a little bit. City choked out the Premier League very early. They have a 13-point lead as we talk right now with uh, a handful of matches left to play. They're going to win the league at some point. It probably won't be... Uh, very soon because they're playing Spurs this weekend and United's playing West Brom. And so their City probably won't make much progress, if any at all, this weekend. But after that, City have a bunch of tomato cans to play and they're going to lift silver in the Premier League. If all these clubs had to play for was their league title and or if we could always assume that the dominant clubs in their domestic leagues would then also replicate that success in the Champions League, it'd be pretty boring. If you're a Liverpool supporter, this situation where you prevailed over Man City and are now in the semifinal has injected you with an adrenaline rush that you could never have seen even eight weeks ago. So, no, I'm not disappointed. I think it's terrific. And look at how do you feel if you're a Roma supporter, for example, right? I mean, this is once-in-a-generation stuff to put Messi and Barcelona out of the Champions League. No, I think it's great. I'm a little bit disappointed. And be honest, as much as I love Real, like I, I think it would have been better for the. Uh, I, I mean, maybe maybe not. I don't know. Having having last year's Champions League winners or the winner of the last two, I guess moving on is is good for the narrative. It's good for what could potentially be an amazing matchup between Real and, and Bayern in the final. But to me, I don't know. I, I almost wish that we would have gotten to see a couple more matchups of champions, and and you know, by virtue of 
of Roma going through, we kind of miss out on it. I said the last time, like I thought it would have been kind of cool to see Barca and Bayern play uh, play two matches against each other. We will now not get to see that. I certainly do not want to see Bayern versus Real as a semifinal. I do believe that, obviously, if that happens, I think the winner of that obviously goes on to win the Champions League. Um, but the Liverpool... Jurgen Klopp versus Bayern matchup, I think maybe would be one of the most interesting to see. So I'm I'm holding out a little bit of hope there. And by the time this airs, uh, I guess we would know what the uh, um, the matchups are going to be. As of us recording right now, we do not yet know what those matchups are. So you know, if, if this uh, ends up being totally wrong, then apologies. It's just arguing about hypothetical or waxing poetic about a hypothetical. Um, let's kind of talk about this, the city Liverpool thing. I mean, well, before we go there, let me just say, I'm going to bang the same drum I've uh, been banging for weeks. If Bayern are drawn to Real Madrid, several employees at UEFA will be disappeared. That's not going to happen. Bayern are, to my mind, the biggest threat to Real Madrid. And it's good for business if Cristiano Ronaldo plays in a final. So they're going to find some way to separate Bayern and Real Madrid. And look, uh, I mean, but the other two last, teams aren't pushovers, but they're not going to be though. playing. You know what I mean? Like it, that it ended up being a quarterfinal matchup last year. Like it, as much as I like to to buy into your idea, we're in the that, semis now, though. No, we're I in the know, semis but now. like, and Barcelona's out. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm I'm all in. I'm all in on on UEFA rigging this thing. That's fine. I'm I'm a okay with it. I don't feel we're going to find out if I'm right in about twelve hours. But you know what? Like I guess in the same in the same kind of breath, you know. I would say that I like to see the, the best teams play in the final, but I mean, it would be kind of nice to be treated to seeing how Real and Bayern go after each other for two matches. It's just, I think it really devalues and kind of dilutes the quality of the final if those two teams don't meet. What, imagine how awful it would be if Liverpool and Roma ended up as the final. I mean, that, well, that's awful like, for you. It's soul for their supporters. It's a dream Yeah, for their support. Do I care about the Liverpool supporters? Do I care about the Roma supporters? Absolutely. I do because they're listening to crossing broad FC. I just wanted good to, save. I just want to great save <laughs> kick, save and a beauty. Of, of course I care. Yeah. Kick, save and a beauty would have been nice to see Brian Elliott do that last night. Anyway. Uh, yeah, like that's, uh, I, I don't know, Phil, like I, I don't, I will not be excited if that's the matchup. If I have to, I mean, like, I guess it would make for a really interesting semi matchup, right? Like if if we watch Roma and Liverpool, uh, like Liverpool counterattack their way to victory over Bayern, and we just somehow see uh, Roma defeat Real Madrid, then that would be interesting. Yeah, like maybe this kind of comes back to that narrative I was talking about before. If if Roma matches up against Real Madrid and knocks them out, you've now slayed both halves of El Clasico uh, in in short order in back to back series like that. That in of itself would be really, really something to not only hold, you know, in the international football community of Serie A over La Liga, but uh, that that to me is kind of flipping off Juventus. I mean, yeah, take your Serie, see your Serie A title, but we defeated the team that you could not. So I, I don't know. Well, partner, let me impersonate a used car dealer now, if I may. Go ahead. What can I do to get you interested in Liverpool as a semifinalist in the Champions League? How can I get you in this car today, Russell? You're going to drive this baby off the lot. So we're going to talk about I love Manchester City one. I'm sorry. I said I love Jurgen. So like, well, I, and we'll get to him too. I'm all in on Jurgen on the sidelines. That's that's how I'll get I'll get excited. Can you can you throw in the floor mats? Well, he's been spectacular in these last two matches because he's won both of them. You could be adorable and fun to watch and gregarious too when your team is running roughshod 
over the presumptive champions of the English Premier League. You Manchester City won Liverpool 2 from the Etihad on Tuesday. Liverpool were decidedly the better side over the 180 minutes, and they clearly deserve their place in this semifinal of the Champions League. I am struggling to go through this as a City supporter, but I'm going to do my best. Liverpool are going to be a very difficult side for any team to play. Their attacking style is going to cause problems for anyone they face in the next round. I'll admit this too. As I watched City fall out of this competition and a lot of the dreams I had for City winning a treble turned into ash in front of my eyes, uh, it's hard to dislike this Liverpool side. You already mentioned that Klopp's kind of cuddly and interesting and smiley. Uh, Mo Salah is really easy to root for. He's elegant, he's quick, he's lethal. But he's also smiley. He's not so me first as some of the other players that you watch at this level. He seems like a thoroughly decent guy. And when I don't watch him play against Man City, I love watching him play. I hate watching him play against Man City because he always scores against them. James Milner was formerly a City player who I loved, consummate professional. He deserves anything good that happens for him. Firmino and Sadio Mane can be a little bit showy in their goal celebrations, but they're strikers. That's how these things go. They both play hard. They play tough. And except for Mane, sometimes they play, for the most part, fair. And for both of them, there's no getting around their quality, their pace, their touch, their will to succeed. These players, these attacking players for Liverpool, have created the opportunity by just sheer will and heart and their gifts of putting Liverpool through comfortably, not just sort of getting by City, but walking them over. 5-1 on the aggregate is a disaster. So while Klopp can be a bit of a caricature, you can't argue with those results. He had great results at Dortmund too. Liverpool are very fortunate to have Klopp as a manager, and they're really well poised to possibly reach this Champions League final, depending on who they draw. And if they get to a final... In 90 minutes, Liverpool can beat anybody. And I don't know how you feel about it, but that's what I see. I don't think if Real Madrid faced Liverpool in the final, they're going to think it's a walkover. I don't feel that way at all. Yeah, maybe not. I mean, you might be right. I think Klopp is such a world-class manager that he's going to be able to to try to figure out ways to exploit any team. And like I said before, like if... if if it ends up being a matchup where Liverpool and, and Real face off, I do expect Salah to be able to get behind the center backs for uh, for Real Madrid. And I think, if nothing else, uh, maybe the the matchup to watch there would be, you know, Marcelo gets himself up so high and involved in the attack that if things go sideways and Liverpool is able to counterattack down that left flank that Marcelo would have left wide open, uh, maybe that's where you start to see balls get played in and Liverpool kind of strike on the counterattack. I would expect, to some extent... Um, now, I, I guess it does really depend on how successful they are in the early going of going straight up the middle against Real Madrid. But, uh, you know, if they don't find early success, I could definitely see them sitting back to play counter, um, especially if that first matchup is is at the Bernabeu. If, it, if they're home, I do think that they're going to look to open it up and to uh, to score and score early and often if they can. But again, this is I guess to some extent, this is why we're at a little bit of a disadvantage, not knowing what the draw is. But um, this Liverpool, this Liverpool team is is well managed. And Klopp, you know, we talked about this on the last episode, but, um, you know, in the, the matchup of Klopp, Klopp versus Guardiola, you know, Guardiola gets all the love, he gets all the fame, he gets all the admiration, but 
Klopp in a few years at Liverpool has managed to, I, I would argue, turn the entire program around. And, you know, they're obviously a storied franchise, but I think Klopp, you know, he, he makes that Liverpool team a much more attractive team to, to transfer to. And, you know, I don't think that at the beginning of the season, with the rumors of Coutinho leaving, I don't think anybody was really expecting Liverpool to be able to kind of overcome uh, the loss of Coutinho. And not only have they overcome it, I think they're better off, uh, or at least right now they're, they seem to be playing in better form without him. So they've they've made do, and a lot of that obviously goes to Salah. Like he's just he's a phenomenal player, and he's having you know one of the all time you know, best scoring years for a striker, uh, at least in recent memory. He's he's just lethal, and he's somebody that you know it's it was clear in this last matchup um, against City they they just couldn't they couldn't contain him, and he he kind of ran rampant. And at the end of that match, uh, trying to think how late in that game it was where he kind of uh, played around the keeper and kind of chipped it far post. It was just a very cool, calm, and collected goal. It's the kind of goal that you would expect to see Zlatan or a Ronaldo score, where you're cool, calm, under pressure, as if you've been there a million times before. And he's certainly not a guy who who gets rattled by the big moments. So, you know, hats off to him. And, of course, hats off to one of my favorite managers, Jurgen Klopp. It was the 56th minute that Salah scored in at the Etihad on Tuesday, too effectively on the tie. I had said last week that Liverpool were probably going to score in the first 20 minutes and make this thing a complete anticlimax. And once again, my predictive skills failed me. Because as for Manchester City, their players deserve all the credit for making the first 45 minutes of Tuesday's second leg really compelling. Uh, Gabriel Jesus scores in the second minute. Now, there were questions about a foul on Virgil van Dijk by Sterling. And, hey... Enough stuff happened at Anfield in the first leg of this tie that I'm willing to just gloss over the fact that the Jesus goal in the second minute may have resulted from a foul upfield. I don't want to hear it. So Jesus scores, and City have the ball in the net again late in the second half, but it gets waved off. Leroy Zane's goal is deemed to be offside, despite the fact that Liverpool's keeper, Carius came out and punched the ball into the fray in the middle of the box and it ricocheted off Milner's leg and fell to Zane in essentially the crease and he tapped it in. It was waved down as offside because Zane was in a position where he was between the last defender and the second defender and with the keeper out of place, it's the second defender that he needs to be behind, etc. and so forth. There was a question of whether if Milner intentionally played the ball back toward a teammate on the line, whether Zane would then be onside. It doesn't matter. The bottom line, it was it was waved off. And there was a palpable feeling when Zane's goal was waved off that that was probably it for City. They needed to get to the locker room with a 2-0 lead insofar as they had lost at Anfield 3-0. And... Nothing more sharply brought into focus how desperate City were to get a two-goal lead to take to the dressing room than Pep Guardiola losing his mind and getting sent to the stands by remonstrating the match official, who, by the way, was an embarrassment and a disaster. And if you didn't know that these guys apparently don't care who wins these matches, you would have thought that he had money on Liverpool. I'm not saying he did. But you would have thought that given the decisions that went against City, 
not just in the first half of this match, but also at Anfield, which I'm sure this match official knew about, that he would have let Guardiola have a lot of rope before he would have made a decision to point to the stand and send him off. And it definitely felt like that match official wanted it to be about him, which is the worst quality you can have in any match official, referee, umpire, anybody who is there to make decisions to facilitate gameplay. They do the best job when you don't know they're there. And this match official was the opposite of not knowing he was there. This match official was a focal point of the first half. It was, like, honestly, it was disgusting. The smirk that he walked back onto the pitch with in the second half after having sent off Guardiola, you know, going into halftime, uh, that was something that the Fox crew was was kind of up in arms about. Not only did he, like, look, it's one thing if you're if you're going to get yourself into an ego battle with a world-class manager and you're going to send him up to the stands, which, you know, unless he really made a threat against the official, I, I don't see why you would send him off. You then come back out, and, uh, you know, one of the interactions he had, I'm trying to remember the, which player it was out on the pitch. It was, like, right after he uh, the official came out onto the field, one of the City players kind of walked over and, and gave him a piece of his mind about them having sent off Guardiola, and he just kind of had this, this you know, crap-eating uh, smirk on his face. And I, I just, it's disgusting. Like, in the way that I think to some extent, you know, the Juve fans are mad at, at, at Oliver for his call on a penalty, I mean... That's a bang-bang play, and that's also a play that you have other officials in on, you know, with you and making that that call ultimately. Uh, you know, that that is a call that, you know, whether you agree with it or not, is a call that has something to do with, you know, the game itself. This Guardiola sending off and then coming back out looking as if, you know, he was proud of himself for, for you know, knocking Guardiola down a few pegs on the ego ladder, just... It just reeked of, of incompetence, and it reeked of just this narcissistic... Uh, um, I don't even know what word I want to go for. It was just narcissistic. It was disgusting, and it was it was like he was proud of himself. I don't get it. I just, I hated it. It's everything that's wrong with officiating, you know. And it just it gives a, it like it gives officials a bad a bad rap, man. Like they get enough enough crap about like you know. I know you were joking about you know oh how much did they pay the officials and they they clearly you know were taking money from Liverpool, but like seriously, I mean it, that was one of the most messed up things I've ever seen. I would think that if if you're a decent, you know, if you do a decent job as an official, right, and you know that that this whole game is going to be about you if you if you make one bad call, uh, the last thing I would be looking I would be looking to do is be smug. You know, I'm going back out there. I'm doing my job. the The idea of showing emotion as an official, of being demonstrative, I just don't get it. I just it's just it's a bad look. It's a bad look all the way around. Well, here's the other thing. Officials obviously say that they officiate matches in a vacuum in other words they don't take into account what happened in the last match or the match before that they're only worried about what's before them and so their decisions are theoretically untainted by anything that came before but managers aren't like that and as i referenced earlier city were denied a fairly clear penalty at the very end of the first leg of this tie at anfield that had they been awarded the penalty and scored it and it was a 3-1 result at Anfield instead of 3-0, it's a much more manageable situation for City at the Etihad. So they're already chafed about that. We're going to talk about the Manchester Derby that happened a few days before the second leg of the Liverpool Champions League tie. But City got absolutely boned in the Derby. And so Guardiola is facing this situation by the time he gets into it with the match official in the second leg of the Liverpool 
Champions League tie, where conservatively he has dealt with a denied penalty, a red card against an opponent in the derby that wasn't given, a penalty that wasn't given in that derby as well, and offside goal with a phantom offside call against Zane, which would have given City a 2-0 lead at home and all the momentum going into the second half. Guardiola had every reason to blow his top at that match official. And I don't believe for one second that that official didn't go into that match on Tuesday night knowing all of the slights that Guardiola had borne and all of the problems that City had had with officiating before that match started. And so, again... While I'm not saying that that match official has to put up with vile slurs and certainly not physical confrontation, I don't believe Guardiola did anything of the sort. I think he yelled at him and made a spectacle of himself, and that match official took that moment to point to the stands and say, you're gone, and again, make it about himself. Completely inappropriate. It's pretty much everything that's wrong with officiating. There have to be plenty of officials around the world that are looking at this guy and... and Essentially, you know, saying under their breath, you know, thanks for nothing, pal. Like now, now we know that every official that's going to be, you know, at the the center of each of these semifinal stretches and especially, you know, even going into the World Cup, they're going to be under that much more of a microscope because this this jackass went out and, uh, you know, made made this, you know, really important match all about himself. And nobody goes to watch the official. Right. Like I back back in the day when I was refereeing youth league games. That was the one thing in uh, USSF training is, uh, you know, nobody comes out to see the official. They're there to see the players. They're out there to support the, the, the boys and the girls, the men and the women who, uh, you know, are honing their craft and, and are learning to play the game. They don't care about the guy wearing yellow. And so uh, it's just a shame. It's a shame that like that kind of, you know, the officiating that, that went against City between the Champions League and in this Manchester Derby. Um, it just kind of compounded itself, and it was funny because last week, I don't know if we mentioned that it was going to be Derby weekend for Manchester or for Madrid, for that matter. We had kind of talked about the fact that, you know, going into these Champions League um, matches, the end of the second leg, that, you know, you do kind of have to look at who they're going to play in the domestic league, and is it going to be a cake? Is it going to be a cakewalk? Is it going to be something where they're going to build confidence and go in, or they're going to be able to rest some of their star players, or is this going to be something where, um, you know, it's going to be a, a drag a drag out fight? And I have to say, the the decision, um, at least in the Champions League matchup, for City to put Aguero in, what was it, in the 60th minute, I thought was a little bit strange. I know that he's coming off um, he's coming off an injury. I, I definitely think that City needed Aguero earlier in that game. And I know that there's a thought that, you know, you want to get him in. You know, if, if you're going to say that he can only play for 30 minutes, that you don't want to burn a sub early. But... I think they certainly could have used somebody of his quality to uh, to bring some legitimate finishing quality to the to the table, especially early in that game. I mean, if you get it, they got the early goal. They got exactly what they needed in that matchup against Liverpool, uh, goal in the third minute. And I guess maybe to some extent, Guardiola didn't feel like it was time to bring in Aguero because uh, you know it stood to reason that if they were able to get such an early goal, that you know why are you going to bring him on prior to halftime? And I guess to some extent that's fair. I guess you don't want him to to tense up to lock up and end up cramping at halftime. But I, I'm not so sure I wouldn't have started the second half with Aguero. And, you know, if, if something goes sideways and, you know, you haven't done a good job of managing your substitutions, well then, okay, that's on you. Um, but to only have Aguero for 30 minutes in that match, I thought it was, you know, you were already kind of fighting with one hand behind your back. And when you're putting him in on so late, 
Um, you know, at that point, you're just expecting him to be a miracle worker, and Aguero's good, but he's not he's not good enough to to pull a miracle out of his out of his uh, derriere. I'm trying not to uh, terribly blur the lines of our analysis by constantly going back and forth between the derby result of the weekend and the second leg of the Liverpool tie. No, I think it's fine but, because I, th- I think they're they're kind of uh, they're they're linked. Well, to respond to your concern, which I certainly had as a city supporter. The reason in my mind that Aguero was not available for at least a full half, in other words, I would have brought him on at halftime on Tuesday night. But we'll never know, neither you nor I nor anybody else, we'll never know to what degree the foul he took from Ashley Young in like the 77th minute of the derby had on his physical condition. And it again goes to the fact last week I said, if I'm Guardiola, I put Aguero in cotton balls for the derby. I don't let him see the pitch because you don't know what's going to happen. Well, don't you know what happened? Guardiola lost his mind, brought Aguero on to try and recover a result that his side had given away, and Aguero gets hit really hard and is rolling around on the ground. Now, I don't know how he actually felt, but what I do know is what you've already pointed out. Aguero wasn't available to start for sure, and he didn't come on in that Tuesday night second leg until the show was over. And I'll never know, we won't know, what effect his playing in the derby to the extent that he did and getting hit as hard as he did limited his ability effectiveness in the second leg against Liverpool. And that is a managerial error. And that was something that we even talked about going into it. You know, we said he was supposed to be potentially ready. Like we we'd mentioned the Guardiola quote that he could possibly be ready for the derby. And I, if I remember correctly, we said that there were there were two scenarios that you could see playing out. One of them was really stupid, and the other one was just slightly less stupid. The really stupid one was playing him at all. Because it's not like, like you know, we've talked about this before, and it, I think you said even on the first show that we did, you know, it doesn't take a lot for a guy to get himself reacclimated with teammates. You know, even even the international teams, you know, they, they make it seem like it's going to take these guys weeks and weeks to figure out how to play together. You know, Aguero missing time. This is still a team that he's played on, you know, for the last however many years, and he's accustomed to playing with these guys. There's no reason to play him in that Manchester derby. None. None whatsoever. He shouldn't have seen the pitch. If the idea was you wanted to keep him fresh and make sure that, like, he's getting himself tuned up for the speed of the game, um, I'm sorry, but I, I think it's I think it's a stupid choice. You know, you ended up losing the derby anyway. So not only did you lose the match, you probably, you know, shortened how much time Aguero was going to be able to play. And he might have picked up another knock. You know, we also don't know what percentage he was playing at in that last 30 minutes. Let's say he could have played on uh, Tuesday, you know, at, let's say, 80%. Well, he takes that hit, and now, you know, instead of getting the 45 minutes that you might have played, you know, expected at 80% in uh, the match against Liverpool, now he's probably playing at, like, 65% for 30 minutes. It's stupid. The math doesn't work out. It's just, look, for, for as great of a manager as Guardiola is and has been in his career... This might be one of the biggest blunders. I, I think his mismanagement of Aguero going into this matchup uh, was was one of the worst moments of, of his managerial career. And I'm sure that there are people who are going to say that, you know, you can't have him miss all this time uh, and then, you know, try to run him out there in the last moments or, or even a, a half of a Champions League game after he hadn't played for a while. Um, but, you know, I, I guess to some extent people would probably point to what's happened in the past with Gareth Bale and starting Bale in crucial matches, I think it was in the last El Clasico, they uh, they had started him after you know a long injury stretch, and it didn't work, and they had to burn a, a substitution early. But 
again, you know, this is this is something where I think they would have been better off if they weren't going to just start him at, at halftime. May as well have just started him in the game and tried to get an early advantage and then kind of let the game play out as, as it was going to. It just, I thought it was a, a poor choice by Pep. Especially since Gareth Bale doesn't have Aguero's Champions League record, which we talked about last week. Aguero is electric in Champions League matches. He yep. scores not quite in every match he plays, but he has huge Champions League highlight reels. He has a hat trick against Bayern. This is not somebody to trifle with in Champions League if he's well enough to go. And the fact that Pep played him at all in the derby over the weekend was a significant mistake. And I'm not saying that Aguero's presence on Tuesday night, had he been fully fit, would have been the difference. Because look, they lost the tie 5-1. I don't know how else to say it. It's a disgrace the way they got beat. But they got beat that way, and ultimately the score is what the score is. However, Pep's job is to put his side in the best possible position to succeed. And I don't know how putting Aguero out at the end of a derby that really doesn't matter helps his team succeed in Tuesday night's Champions League second leg. I don't think it does. No, there's no way to there's no way to say that it could. I totally agree. Um, let's kind of move on uh, really quick. The uh, the Madrid derby uh, was I wouldn't say it was it was, certainly wasn't a barn burner. I don't think it was a total snooze fest. Uh, who steps up and scores for Real Madrid in that match? Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, carried that momentum through as we've you know discussed at length at this point. Uh, into the Champions League matchup. I thought it was interesting because, you know, when we often talk about the importance of whatever the domestic league game is leading up to the Champions League, the Madrid derby was going to be kind of a a drag-out fight, and it certainly wasn't something where I thought that Real was going to go all out because you still need to conserve some energy uh, and some mental space for, you know, closing out Juventus. Um, I do think to some extent that them playing such a, a difficult matchup against their crosstown rivals... Um, and fighting for that second-place spot in La Liga, um, I do think it kind of threw them off their game a little bit, and I think that that's at least partially to blame. You know, that and the Ramos suspension you know, definitely had something to do with the way that they played against Juventus. They they were not going in against, like, let's say the way that Bayern had to play against Augsburg going into uh, their matchup. Uh, Real is is not in trouble, you know, obviously, but... They are a point behind Valencia now for third in La Liga. They needed the points. And the gap between them and Atletico right now is four points with, uh, I think it's three or four matches left to play. It's it's not very much time left in the season. And that was their moment to kind of capitalize and to jump back up, you know, closer to second place as this season kind of winds down. It's a very strange place for, for Madrid to be. It's not or for Real to be. It's not a place that they're familiar with. You typically expect them to be, you know, one or at worst two, certainly not fourth. I'll agree with your assessment that these league results can bleed into um, Champions League matches, uh, cup matches, et cetera, and so forth. And uh, I'll apologize right now. I'll note that Sevilla lost 4-0 at Celta Vigo over the weekend. Why do you have to bring we, Don't hate well, on, Stop hating on Sevilla, Phil. I'm not hating on Sevilla. It's really I'm using upsetting. that. I'm using that as a segue to mention that we didn't even talk about Munich going through on aggregate 2-1 against Sevilla, primarily because in the Champions League, the Bayern-Munich-Sevilla tie was one of the worst ties you could ever have been sentenced to watch over 180 minutes. It was dry. It was bad. It was sorry. Munich never had to get out of second gear. A nil-nil at the Allianz is something that nobody wants to experience. But look... Sevilla acquitted themselves well in the tie against Munich, 
but they didn't score at Munich to put Munich under anything resembling a threat. And they only scored one goal in 180 minutes. And if you're Sevilla, if they tell you before it starts, you're only going to score once in 180 minutes against Bayern Munich, you know you're not going through. And that's exactly what happened. As mundane and uninspiring as Bayern were in this tie, you still have to favor them over Roma and Liverpool. Form is only what it is. The quality of Bayern Munich, if they manage to turn it on in this semifinal round, makes them prohibitive favorites, I believe, against anybody but Real Madrid. So to loop it back to La Liga, yeah, Sevilla had a bad weekend, and the Madrid derby wasn't all you would ever want. And I do think that the clubs in La Liga carried some of that not-so-great form into the midweek matches, and you saw what happened. It was interesting, though, um, you know, as we kind of look back, um, you know, Augsburg actually got a uh, uh, an 18th minute goal. It ended up being, um, yeah, it was an 18th minute goal. It was an own goal um, that kind of shocked Bayern early in that matchup. Bayern obviously then goes on to score four goals and kind of put their their foot on Augsburg's throat. But you know, it's a momentum win, and you know, ultimately that certainly carried through. We saw it. It, it was everything that you would have expected Bayern to do. Now going forward. Bayern has wrapped up their league, or they, they're one win away from last. No, they, they did. They wrapped up their league. There is no competition at the top. They can rest guys in, in their league matches if they so choose. They're the only team that is able to do it right now. Like I mentioned, Real is still in a fight to try to jump over, um, who did I say, Valencia for third. And they're in a spot right now where, you know, I, I think they obviously want to get up into second. They're not going to be able to catch Barcelona. Um, so they're, they're certainly not going to be looking to rest a bunch of guys. Some of the matches that they still have left in the, in the La Liga season are uh, not going to be conducive to them sitting all of their stars. Um, you know, Roma's still in a bit of a, in a bit of a battle in Serie A. Um, who am I missing? Liverpool. Where's Liverpool at in the standings in the EPL right now? Cause I'm not positive. Well, United are second. Um, I'm looking to pull up the Serie A standings. Uh, Roma right now is Liverpool tied. are third. They're on okay. 67 points, tied with Tottenham. But it really doesn't matter because Chelsea have 57 points, so they're 10 points behind both Tottenham and Liverpool. Liverpool is hammered into, at worst, third or fourth, possibly second if United falter. But really, all of Liverpool's eggs are in the Champions League basket now, as they should be, because these semifinal berths don't come around that often. So Roma and Lazio are currently tied on points with 60 apiece. Uh, they are not going to be able to even come close to catching Napoli or uh, Juventus for the top. But, you know, if they're looking for the to, to battle for that third-place spot, um, it, it will be very interesting to see how they kind of line up against some of these, uh, these teams. They've got Juventus on the 13th of May, which is going to be um, – that's a potential killer for them going forward um and since they're can you know since they're uh behind or they're tied on points with Lazio that's actually their matchup coming up on Sunday so that'll be you know a real emotional matchup for them luckily they don't have a Champions League game coming up you know a few days later so uh you know this could actually in in some way shape or form decide to an extent who's going to finish third in Serie A uh between Roma and Lazio so that'll be interesting to see um I I don't know I don't know Phil I'm looking at the at our at our show sheet here and i think it's definitely worth talking about the Concacaf champions league excuse me at least a little bit um red bull they end up going out 
against Chivas. Damn it. Club Deportivo Guadalajara, yeah. often simply known as Guadalajara and most commonly known as Chivas. Yeah. I don't make this stuff up. Yeah, I was. I don't know why I, why I freaked out for a second looking at it. Yeah, so Red Bull goes out against Chivas. Uh, they go, they, they end on a, on a nil, nil draw. They had the ability to, um, you know, take this thing to extra time on their home field. They failed to do so. They lose one nil on aggregate. Um, the bigger, the bigger thing surrounding this wasn't necessarily the nil, nil draw on the pitch. It was, it was the post game fracas in the, uh, in the stands. Well, first of all, Red Bulls really were snake bit. They outshot Chivas twenty to one in this match. Red Bulls put nine of their shots on target. Chivas's lone shot was off target, but Red Bulls never got the goal they needed. Chivas goes home one nil on aggregate, and they are in the final. And Red Bulls are not. The thing I shook my head at and chuckled at, and we talked about before we came on the air, is you can only imagine how ridiculous some of these Red Bull supporters look the next day going to work. Yeah, where. A coworker goes, hey, Dave, what happened to your eye? Oh, well, you know, I was at the Red Bulls match last night. I got out with some Chivas fans. Well, you know, that's understandable. Sometimes I drink Red Bull. I get pretty hopped up, too. No, man, I wasn't drinking Red Bull. I was at the Red Bull soccer match. And then the guy goes, wait a minute, you got into a fight after a Red Bull soccer match? Yeah. Well, I don't understand that at all. There's no reason for your eye to be that busted up. What What are you thinking? Um, <laughs> the fact that the Juve supporters apparently – did not fall out into full-scale warfare with the Real Madrid supporters after the way the Juventus match ended. But Red Bull supporters are throwing hands with Chivas supporters over a CONCACAF Champions League semifinal. That's, that doesn't compute. Something's wrong. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, the, the Red Bull fans, however many of them are left that haven't flocked uh, to... to um new nycfc with good reason yeah whatever whatever amount of them are left i mean i guess it stands to reason that they uh they're fighting for something because their team certainly doesn't fight that much on the pitch um let's move on to toronto full of your favorite players your favorite u.s men's national team players michael bradley and josie altador really nice of josie to uh to pull a national team josie and go out early in this match with an injury very fitting Nothing. Oh, like... he played six minutes. Why are you being so hard on the guy? He went out there and played for six minutes. They were and six, then forced of, his, six of the best minutes he's ever played. Forced his club to burn a substitution in the seventh minute. That's Josie for you. But look, Toronto FC did exactly what they needed to do. They were up 3-1 to begin with, and they were in the Estadio Azteca in Mexico City where American sides and MLS sides have traditionally wilted in the heat and gasped in the thin, smoggy air. And usually it's a recipe for disaster for uh, American, Canadian, whom, whomsoever sides to go to Mexico City and try and get a result. Man, Toronto FC just strangled Club America in this match. Uh, Club America didn't score until extra time in the second half, and it was a penalty that was awarded that was essentially a consolation for the home fans. This result really wasn't ever in doubt. And again, it pains me, but... Michael Bradley has now led Toronto FC into a CONCACAF Champions League final. And again, it will pain me, but I'll be rooting for Toronto FC in this final. Uh, Do not mistake my uh, somewhat comical disdain for Altidore and Bradley for blindness. I want the MLS side to go in here and win this title. I hope they do it. It would be great to see. Um, But there's no question that Toronto did wonders 
to get out of Mexico City, not only in one piece, but with a comfortable 4-2 aggregate win. I would like to make the petition that if Michael Bradley and Josie Altidore lead this Canadian team to victory, that we just deport them to Canada. Oh, I've been saying that for weeks. And I, I think that Canada would be, would be pretty ecstatic about it. And that's fine. I'm all about getting rid of these <laughs> I'm getting rid of these guys. Well, and listen, Altador needs Altador needs the universal health care in Canada because he's always pulling up lame. Oh, so he could, oh, he could go to any oh. provider he wants, any hospital, he'll be fine. Oh, man. You know what's funny, though, Phil, is the feedback that, that people get on Twitter when they happen to mention the fact that they were disappointed in the effort that Josie and Michael Bradley put forward at you know different points in their international career. Like I don't understand how these guys seem to be like Teflon Don. I just don't get it. And like the idea that going into this World Cup cycle, if if they had managed to qualify, that like we would have been subjected to watching yet another failed attempt at, at getting out of whatever group stage or getting past the first round of knockouts with a team led by Michael Bradley, who really hasn't played the same since his dad was fired as manager, and Josie Altidore, who still, you know, I've said this before, he plays like uh, he plays like a baby. I, I He doesn't use his size. I, I just don't believe in him as a player. And, you know, uh, I just think for somebody who's been, you know, given God-given abilities and and size, you can't teach size. You can teach skill. You cannot teach size. For a guy who just doesn't use the the physical traits that have been given to him in a way that you know, um, I think plenty of people would would be envious to have the kind of the physical stature that he has and to be able to play this game. Uh, with that in mind, he just he to me he's just a disappointment. And I know he's still young. Like the crazy thing is, you look at Josie Altador and you think, like, with the amount of of bad clips we have of him, and with the amount of hype that's surrounded him for so long, you would think that he's like got to be in his mid thirties, and he's only twenty eight. Like it still stands to reason that you know in twenty, what are we looking at twenty twenty two, the next World Cup cycle, that you know this could be the narrative surrounding him is, oh, is it Josie Altador's final World Cup? You know, maybe Jurgen Klinsmann's son or somebody will take over and they'll they'll leave him off and they'll put on like CJ Sapong to play the Chris Wondolowski role. Although I think Sapong, you know, buries that that shot that Wondolowski puts over the bar. But, you know, who am I? I'm just a guy. Here's another fun hypothetical for you since we love to engage in things that never happen. (laughs) Imagine that the United States finds its way out of Trinidad and Tobago and limps into World Cup qualifying and is now in the tournament and they're in the group stage. And they draw Spain, or they draw Germany, or they draw France. What does that match look like? Like if you told the Spanish national team to get out of the group stage, you have to beat the Americans 11-0. They could do it, right? Oh, easily. Like, I don't think there's any question they could do it. So as much as we all mourn the fact that we don't have a United States side to root for in this upcoming World Cup, what were we really looking at? What were we really hoping for? We would have been hoping for them to bleed out some uninspiring results in the group stage, and then we would hope that we didn't face one of the world powers, one of the terrors. Hell, Argentina would disembowel the United States. Sure would. In a knockout match. So, like, again, I'm not going to mourn for the loss of watching Michael Bradley and Altidore and whomsoever else try to labor through another World Cup without soiling themselves. I'm bored. I don't want to see it. Let's move on. Speaking of moving on, how about the fact that ESPN FC is moving on to the ESPN Plus network? I I don't get it. I know that Disney has been looking at um, 
creating separate apps that are going to you know essentially become these new premium platforms for you know uh, they're pulling all the the Disney movies and the Pixar movies off of Netflix to then put onto this like Disney streaming platform that I think starts in 2019. Now ESPN is taking one of their only quality soccer programs and they're now forcing it onto this platform where like hey, you still pay for cable or you you've cut the cord and now you're paying for YouTube TV or PS View or whatever. Um not only do you have to uh you know suffer the consequences of not having ESPN FC, a show that plenty of people like to watch uh via, you know, your typical cable package, now you've got to pay an additional fee to go watch them over on this ESPN Plus platform. Phil, are you uh you going to shell out the extra $5 a month for ESPN FC? I have two words for you, hell and no. First of all, I'm a non-cord cutter. I'm still paying Xfinity and Comcast egregious amounts of money every month. And I have ESPN and I have ESPN2 and ESPNU and the Ocho, as was <laughs> noted in fine film. I love the, the Ocho. And Dodgeball? Yeah, come on. That's correct. You remember, uh, Phil, just really quick, did you happen to catch in, in the uh, last summer when they, they did ESPN8, the Ocho? They had the random, uh, the random fun sports. They had... Um, uh, 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 did they? They didn't do slam ball. I'm trying to remember what some of the sports they had. They had like ultimate frisbee was on there. They had um, uh, crap. I forget what the, it's like. An Indian game. There was a game that like originated in India. It's almost like tag, but it's like tackle tag. Uh, there were some incredible sports when they they rolled out ESPN eight the Ocho for the day. I think they it took over ESPNU. It was one of my favorite moments of the year. That was it was just simply phenomenal. Handball I think was on there as well. In any event, I'm paying ESPN a lot of money already. And for them to take a show that they have put on in the 6 o'clock hour for the last two or three years and built up a following for, and to yank this show off my cable package and put it onto a streaming service, it's going to cost $5 a month, and I can only watch it online. I can't watch it on my television. Meanwhile, over here, away from ESPN FC, they're paying Mike Greenberg, Jalen Rose, and Michelle Beadle almost $15 million a year in salary for this get-up show that nobody's watching. Look, I'm not here to fill the hole that ESPN created in their morning programming by paying them for a streaming service, which, by the way, ESPN's full raise into streaming are approximately six to seven years too late. If they think they're going to get people to pay additional money for streaming services after what they've been bending people over for on their cable bills for all this time, they're lost. And the other thing I'll add here right now is to move ESPN FC to a premium streaming service, just as the Champions League is cresting to a finish and as the World Cup is near, it's greedy, it's craven, it's unconscionable. And I will not, will not pay to watch ESPN FC or any of this other garbage that they're putting on the streaming service. I'm out. You know what I think the bigger shame is, Phil? If, if they had done this as a way to kind of push out the World Cup, um, to to put out like let's say they were going to to build ESPN Plus around you know hosting the World Cup they were going to have all of the audio broadcasts in in every language available they were going to have team specific broadcasts that are kind of focusing on or highlighting um, specific players kind of the same way that NBC does that uh, in the Stanley Cup playoffs where they'll have a camera on you know like Claude Giroux or Sidney Crosby or whomever in the series. And you can kind of tune in and, and watch where that guy is on the ice at all times. You know, if they were going to do that 
and and they were really trying to roll this out as part of this really incredibly comprehensive World Cup coverage, you know, this unprecedented level of access, then I'd say absolutely sign me up for the five bucks a month. Heck, for for that, sign me up for $15 a month during the World Cup and I'm fine with it. But you're taking really the only soccer program you have and and now it's getting blackballed. It's getting banished. And I'm honestly wondering, you know, I know that people are starving for, for coverage of the sport in this country, but how many people are really going to go buy this premium platform just to follow ESPN FC? As many people as they thought there would, minus one, because I'm not doing it. And on that, I mean, that's that's a pretty down way to finish this episode, Phil. Maybe we should, uh, let's pick things up a little bit. We have a few quitter, uh, quitter, a few Twitter questions. Um, so I put out to the people, any questions going into this? Um, Vincent asks, um, he says the end of the Juventus Real Madrid was uh, match was unsatisfying. Didn't care who won, but the it was lame. What was that? Uh, sorry, didn't care who won, but lame way for the game to end. Good call to give a penalty. Yes or no? I I say yes. Did, yeah, I've already been heard on this. I don't tend to want to see matches officiated based on what the movie would end as if somebody was shooting a movie. It's a penalty. The player went through the back of a player who was chesting the ball down to put it past a defenseless keeper. You have to call that penalty. If you're not going to call that penalty, then what's the point of having an official out there at all? Let them call their own. Um, Another question that came through was uh, by Frank Barber. He says, not a Champions League-specific question, but wondering your thoughts on Bayern reportedly hiring Kovac as their manager for next year. I don't know if – I don't really have much of an opinion on it except – uh, for knowing that you know Kovac was a former Bayern defender, um, and that he's been doing a, a pretty solid job with Eintracht Frankfurt, um, or at, at least had been, um, it, it's certainly not a big name. I'm a little bit surprised. Like I know that maybe it was a good idea in their minds. They wanted to kind of get back to having somebody who had been, um, you know, a, a club player for them that had some history with the club and understanding the the mentality of the team. But um, you know that that strikes me as a as a, a place. It's kind of like the anti Carlo Ancelotti move, right? Like there are certainly other guys that were on the market that are bigger names that have more clout in international football. And this one, this one seems a little bit strange. Frankfurt's in fifth in the Bundesliga, so it's not like they're a poor side by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, it's not a, a hire that, at least from where I'm sitting, inspires any kind of confidence going forward. Well, for me, the primary remit for the new manager at Munich, if they're going to get one, is to refresh this side. Lewandowski is a wonderful player. Robin is on the back end. I think we would both agree. Ribery's no baby. Mueller's no baby. Uh, even Vidal, uh, you wonder about what his prime looks like. This is a relatively old side, except for Hamas. And you, you know, whoever the new manager is, if they get a new manager, has to decide who of the old guard is going to stay, who can I get rid of for value, and who do I have to part with even if I can't get value because we can't continue to run out this same group for another three years. It's not going to work. Um, let's see. I think there was one more question. Just give me a second as I pull this up. If you could pick one player from the remaining four teams in the Champions League to play for, now they specifically pointed this to the Union. Um, this is DJ Musa that put this in. Um, if you could pick one player not named Ronaldo, to play for your team, whatever that team is, if it's the Philadelphia Union, if it's if it's your local club team, uh, who would you pick? Well, let's be realistic. I would take Mo Salah, but he's not coming. Who you could reasonably get in two or three years is Dzeko, 
because Jekko, again, is, I believe, in his 30s. And while he's been super effective for a long time, you can't imagine he'll continue to play at this level forever. And MLS would be a, a fine landing spot for Jekko in two or three years. I'd love to see Ed Jekko put on a union kit in a couple of years. Um, so those would be my answers. Uh, Mike Parioli asks, do you think that Real would beat the ever-loving crap or the ever living crap out of Liverpool if they if they played if they're drawn. I think we already kind of touched on this, but I would say to some extent I would expect uh, you know if Liverpool doesn't sit back play that counter game, um, you know if they're if Real is able to survive the first leg without Ramos, I I don't think it ends up being very close. Um, here's the other thing, Phil, and and maybe this is the the best way to end this. Um, the the reports are out that um, uh, Torres is going to be leaving Atletico Madrid. Is he a guy that that you would be interested in um, in coming to MLS? There are apparently a few clubs that are interested. Um, uh, I I would kind of think that if you're looking for somebody who's going to you know bring some eyes to the game, he's certainly not Zlatan, but uh, Torres is a, is a good player. I mean, he would certainly be a, a higher quality player in MLS. Um, would you have any interest in in you know if you were running a, an MLS club? Would you have interest in in making a move for him? My interest in Torres would be tepid. Um, he's so far away from the heights of his career. He's nowhere near the player Zlatan is right now. And I'd be worried that he would come here the way Pirlo did and really peter out in the last 16, 18, 20 months of his time in MLS. So I would have to sound the player out and his agent out about how committed he was to coming to MLS and you know, pouring what he has left in his bucket into succeeding in this league. I'd be very wary though. It is going to be interesting because uh, Chicago has his discovery rights and apparently the fire are interested in, in potentially bringing him over. His uh, uh, Chicago's manager had been teammates with Torres at Atletico um, at Atletico Madrid for uh, six years. And then for another two year span, Oh uh, three to 05. So uh it, it will be interesting going forward. Like I, I would, I look Torres is 34. You're right. He's certainly not playing anywhere near the, uh, the level that he was in the height of his career, but he, he could be an interesting name to come to MLS. Uh, he's certainly not going to have the, uh, the star quality or the immediate impact that Zlatan had, but I do think he would probably be more effective than, you know, Italian legend, Andrea Pirlo. So um, I guess we'll see as, as we're going forward, you know, it's, it's inevitable. You're going to start seeing some big names um, coming available and, and, you know, I would think that Zlatan has brought ML or eyes to MLS, and I've got to think that some guys who are looking for you know a bigger payday. If you're looking for just a straight payday, you're going to go play in China. Um, but if you're looking for you know building your brand and kind of uh, getting yourself exposure in in large markets, you know you got to think that some of these guys are going to have to continue to to entertain the possible move to MLS. So uh, we'll kind of see if any of these guys uh, wiggle free. Now the uh, I guess depending on when people hear this, depending on where I, when I post this, um, the Champions League draw will have been done. So, um, you know, I think we gave a pretty decent enough analysis just tentatively about what some of these matchups could look like. Um, without knowing, Phil, what matchups would you like to see? Well, I mean, I'd love to see uh, Liverpool play Bayern. I think that would be a lot of fun. Um, Liverpool-Real Madrid would be the one that some people want to see. But for me, Liverpool-Bayern is the new style and the new guard against the old guard. And you'd have Klopp taking on a nemesis 
which I think would be pretty irresistible. I agree. This is like two episodes in a row that we have agreed on uh, on wanting to see, you know, whatever the potential matchups were. And we certainly did not expect, if you went back and listened to the last episode, we certainly had not predicted Roma to go through. So it does kind of mix up what some of our original uh, Champions League semifinal matchup or desired matchups would be. So uh, I am totally in line with you on this, Phil. And I think uh, with us kind of finishing up in unison, I think it's it's probably time to wrap Um you know, a big thank you to everybody who listens. We we did have international listeners uh, on the last episode, Phil. We had some people listening in Sweden, France, Italy. It's pretty nice. You uh, you have any any wise words for those people who are listening abroad? Well, please keep listening and feel free to reach out. Twitter is there for you at all times. At Joy on Broad is Russell. At Phil Kaidel, that's me. Uh, we're responsive. We've answered questions tonight. We'll do it again. So stay with us. Let us know what you think. Again, abuse not real welcome. Constructive criticism is great, but ultimately we really do want to hear from you. That we do. Uh, make sure that if you are not already, or if you have a friend who is uh, big in international football and hasn't done so already, make sure you tell them to subscribe to the podcast. It's available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere else that you get your podcasts. Uh, leave a five-star review on iTunes. We'll read it on the next show. And until then, uh, until next week when we begin to uh, preview the semifinal uh, matchups of the Champions League. Uh, I'm Russell Joy. That's Phil Kaidel, and we will talk to you again in a week.